Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tamiso Luhoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Rwandans vote today in presidential election. Concern over unrest in Mauritania ahead of referendum, and UN envoy meets South Sudan's President Salva Kiir. In economics news, South Africans urge to join efforts to protect the country's fiscal integrity, and in sports news, World Athletics Championships get underway today. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Rwandan President Paul Kagame, who's been in power since the year 2000, is widely expected to win another term as the country goes to the polls. Kagame is facing two little-known candidates who have made little impact in only three weeks of campaigning against the incumbent and his Rwandan patriotic front. The BBC's Tommy Oladepo reports. President Paul Kagame divides opinion abroad, but the widespread vocal support he receives at home should lead to a landslide victory in these elections. He's even referred to the vote as a mere formality. Mr. Kagame is credited with Rwanda's rapid economic development, but critics accuse him of suppressing dissent and political freedom in the country. The other hopefuls in the elections say their supporters have faced intimidation, but the governing party denies these claims. Another Zambian opposition leader has been arrested and will be charged with defaming President Edgar Lungu. Xavier Chishimba of the United Progressive People Party hit the headlines last month criticizing Lungu's decision to impose emergency powers and suggesting the president should go to hospital for mental tests. Political tensions in Zambia have been rising since the main opposition leader, Akiende Chilima, was arrested on treason charges in April. Lungu says he invoked emergency powers to deal with acts of sabotage by political opponents. South Africa's Department of International Relations has denied reports that the government paid a ransom to secure the release of hostage Stephen McGowan. The New York Times earlier reported that South Africa used an intermediary to pay a 4.3 million US dollar ransom for McGowan's freedom. The report claims the payment was negotiated through the gift of the Givers Foundation. McGowan was released almost six years after being taken hostage by Al-Qaeda and Mali. Director of South Africa's Gift of the Givers Foundation, Imtia Suleiman. We kept the negotiations alive. We had to make sure because when you have nothing to deal with, there's a possibility you may lose the captors. And we succeeded for two years in keeping them interested without having anything. I think we built a lot of goodwill. And they said, look, these are South Africans. These are good people. They've helped our people in Mali. They help people all over the world. And I kept on telling them, can they consider, you know, a compassionate release? Because Stephen is now alone and his mother has passed on. And really in South Africa, we can't afford that kind of money. So they kept on talking to them. At one point, the elders in the group said, yes, he can go. 
but the, the formations changed and new people came. The younger ones came into the, into the tribe and they said, sorry, it doesn't work like that. The British government has praised Tunisian officials for what it described as the excellent work to improve security at airports and tourist resorts. This follows militant attacks in 2015 which killed dozens of tourists. Britain warned its citizens against any travel to Tunisia, but on a visit there, British Foreign Office Minister Alistair Burt said that the advice had been revised. We know that these days there can never be a situation in which there is no risk at all. But we have been very pleased to advise our citizens that returning to Tunis, returning to the resort areas is something we would like them to do. And we are confident uh, that Tunisia will continue to work with uh, the United Kingdom and others to ensure that our citizens are not just safe, but free to travel where they wish to so the terrorist does not win. And finally, Islamic State militants are continuing to commit genocide against members of the Yazidi religious minority in Iraq. The statement by the United Nations came on the third anniversary of the start of the militant group's assault on the Yazidi community. The BBC's Alan Johnston reports. The faith of the Yazidi people combines elements of various ancient Middle Eastern religions. But in the eyes of the Islamic State militants, the Yazidis were unbelievers, fit to be slaughtered and enslaved en masse. And a UN commission says that three years after it began, what constitutes a campaign of genocide continues. The militants still hold captive some 3,000 Yazidi women and girls, subjecting them to rape and beatings. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Rwandans will vote today in a presidential election that is widely expected to return strongman Paul Kagame to office for a third seven-year term. 59-year-old Kagame is facing two little-known candidates who have made little impact in only three weeks of campaigning against the incumbent and is all-powerful Rwandan Patriotic Front. Tens of thousands of cheering supporters fettered Kagame at his final rally on Wednesday, praising the man who halted the 1994 genocide and has been de facto leader of Rwanda ever since. Channel Africa's Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. The presidential election has been broken into two portions, with the third August spared for Rwandans in diaspora. About 20,000 Rwandans in the diaspora have been confirmed by electoral commission here to have participated in the voting process at 98 polling centers in the respective countries of residence. In Rwanda, preparations are on high, with just a few hours remaining before over 6 million point eight Rwandans descending into polling stations on 4th August 2017. Some foreigners, however, living in Rwanda, have confirmed that the mood is relatively calm. Yes, so um, business for us is growing month over month, and it's doing very well. Uh, we're a startup company, so we started last year 
technology, e-commerce, and uh, you know our industry in Rwanda just continues to expand and grow as people uh, use more mobile money, use technology, and are more comfortable with e-commerce. And um, especially specific to election time, I mean, we haven't. Uh, we just continue to do well, better and better each month. So we actually haven't seen any sort of negative impact at all. Um, it's so it's, we've had a very positive. Okay, the mood in Rwanda you cannot compare with the other countries. Like especially in Africa, if you see during the time of election, there there is a lot of kills. People they are moving from. Foreigners, they are moving from that country to back to their country because of kills, disaster, whatever. But here in Rwanda, it's very peaceful. You cannot compare with the other countries. The campaigns, friendly, peaceful. It's, even you cannot be able to know the difference between the campaign time and the normal days. So you cannot compare with another country. It is truly a government that has uh, that is that is working for the people, and that's and I've been to many countries where that is not the case, and so I really applaud uh, the, the the people and the government of Rwanda for re- really building for the future uh, and for a peaceful and a, and a, and a successful future. The electoral commission here has also said that the voting process in the foreign countries has gone well. The country's directorate of immigration has made it clear that all borders will remain open since there is no any security challenges suspected. Eve Butera is its spokesperson. Back in Rwanda, voters have expressed the readiness in the voting process as opposed to earlier concerned that there would be worries, especially for the members of opposition parties. Paul Njenje is an political analyst in Kigali. We all know who will be the winner. If you remember the reason we had a referendum here that finally culminated into amendment of the constitution, you can tell who could be the winner of this election. The voting exercise is expected to start at exactly 7 a.m. in the morning on the 4th of August 2017 and the tallying process will immediately start after 3 p.m. The partial results, according to the electoral commission, will be announced 24 hours later. Sylvanus Kadamira, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Ghanaian President John Mahama, who is heading the Commonwealth Elections Observer Mission in Kenya, says that the outcome of next Tuesday's general election will establish the East African nation as a democracy on the continent. Mahama condemned the murder of senior electoral commission official Chris Msando and called for speedy investigations into the killing. Meanwhile, the Kenyan government says it will deploy more than 150,000 security officers across the country during the electoral period. On August the 8th, Kenyans will vote for a president as well as members of the national and county assemblies. Sarah Kimani has more. It's rush hour at the country bus station in Nairobi. I'm registered at Sierra County. I have to go back and vote for my beloved presidential candidate and the other candidates. I'm going home because I'm going to vote at home. I took my vote at home. Bus operators are doing brisk business. Yeah, if there was no election, in August always we, at least we get something. Lakini the price has risen from, uh, it could be 800 in August normal fare. 
lakini by the moment we are taking 1500 that's good in fact the trip home is ever not automatic the marshals here decide who goes home and who stays behind gerard odak is at out at the country bus station we are checking on the uh, the, uh, the voters voters card and we are finding that most of the people are going to vote home actually the registered there and we, in this, in a few cases when you find your your vote is in uh, for nairobi and you are, tra- you are traveling uh, to sharks we don't allow you to travel but why people have a right to travel home they have the right to travel home but we want to, we want them to vote and you can't lie to me someone can travel to western now and then you expect more to travel back to nairobi before 8 This year's election is a tight race pitting incumbent president Uhuru Kenyatta against his political rival former prime minister Raila Odinga of the opposition coalition the National Super Alliance NASA John Mahama the former president of Ghana is ahead of the Commonwealth Observers Elections Mission to Kenya It's a critical election I call it a watershed It is the election that is going to see the maturity of Kenyan democracy It will establish Kenya as one of the leading democracies on this continent. 19.6 million Kenyans are registered to vote. Kenya's principal secretary in charge of interior security Karanja Kibicho says security has been heightened in the country and in areas that police have mapped as hotspots. But we have also had a season where there is a lot of spread of fear by politicians especially which is making some Kenyans choose to live where they stay to their villages where they perceive it's more peaceful and i think for, from the government end the best we do is to assure kenyans that they need to stay calm they need to stay where they are registered and voters and they need to trust that we shall protect them to actually Meanwhile, the African Union Observer Mission to Kenya has warned that the exploitation of ethnic divisions during the campaign period has the potential to destabilize the East African nation during and after the polls. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Head of Global UN Peacekeeping Operations, the engagement of countries in Eastern Africa in a process aimed at revitalizing the peace process and bringing an end to conflict in South Sudan is a good thing. Jean-Pierre Lacroix, who is the UN Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping Operations, was speaking in the South Sudanese capital, Juba, following a meeting with the country's president, Salva Kiir. Daniel Dickinson has more from Juba. Press call at the headquarters of the South Sudanese army in Juba, where on Wednesday the UN peacekeeping chief, Jean-Pierre Lacroix, met the South Sudanese president, Salva Kiir. They discussed the peace process and other issues. The conflict in South Sudan began in December 2013. A peace agreement signed between the warring parties in August 2015 has faced numerous challenges over the last couple of years, with conflict erupting in different locations across the country. A regional initiative has been put forward by the eight countries of the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, or IGAD. It agreed in July to set up a high-level forum to work across the region to get the South Sudanese peace process back on track. Here's Mr Lacroix. 
We uh, discussed the uh, initiative of uh, IGAD towards the revitalization of the uh, peace agreement, and uh, I think there was a convergence that it's a, it's a good thing that uh, IGAD countries are being more engaged in helping uh, South Sudan and its people. The Under-Secretary-General for Peacekeeping Operations, who's on his first official visit to South Sudan, also met the Minister of Cabinet Affairs, Martin Elia Lomuru, who joined the presidential meeting. In particular, the President sent messages, very clear message, on what he would like uh, the UN to, to do. One key one was the fact that he would like uh, EGAT, UNMIS or United Nations to reach out those rebels who are holding citizens hostages and to engage them and to bring them to the table to speak talk to one, one another in order to bring peace. Mr Lacroix underlined that the peace process could not move forward if fighting carried on. He pledged the continued support of the UN towards providing aid for the most vulnerable people in South Sudan. The UN uh, are here to help uh, South Sudan. South Sudan achieve peace and help the population of South Sudan. And we emphasize the fact that uh, uh, the uh, UN uh, humanitarian agencies uh, are doing their best to help uh, the population of South Sudan. And uh, we look forward to uh, further cooperation with the government so that we can uh, access uh, population in distress. South Sudan is now facing a humanitarian crisis, which has left more than 5.5 million people in need of aid. That's out of a population of some 12 million. Some 1.7 million people have also fled as refugees to neighbouring countries. Daniel Dickinson in Juba, South Sudan. Change Your Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. Catches every Friday at 1000 hours Central African time and Saturday at 1300 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The UN Human Rights Office, OHCHR, says the government of Mauritania has a responsibility to ensure that a free, transparent and credible voting process takes place in a constitutional referendum due to take place on Saturday. The call came yesterday as opposition politicians were planning a march in the northwest African country's capital, Nouakchott. Protests have been going on daily since the 21st of July, led by opposition leaders urging a boycott of the vote. An amendment to Mauritania's constitution, which would abolish the Senate and change the national flag, is being put to a vote in the referendum. Alpha Diallo asked OHCHR's Ravina Shamdasani to outline the UN's main concerns. We are particularly concerned about these protests, uh, given that in the past few days the government 
and the security forces have reacted with excessive force to the protests that have taken place. Uh, when you talk about apparent suppression of dissenting voices, do you have also example of reported use of force against protest leaders in Nwatshot? They have, you know, dispersed the gatherings and in several cases protest leaders were beaten up and a number of them were arrested. Requests were sent in to authorize these protests and they were never approved. When these protests then took place, uh, the authorities attempted to disperse them. When this did not work, what they did was they apparently uh, reportedly beat up the leaders. We have witnessed some of the injuries that these people suffered due to the beatings. Do you know if some opponents are still in prison? We do have reports that uh, many people have been arrested. Um, however, we have sought clarification from the authorities on how many people were arrested, uh, what the status is, whether they've been charged or released, and we have failed to obtain this information from them. But what is clear is that there have been arrests that have taken place during demonstrations. And what would you be looking for from the government with respect to ensure free and transparent election? Well, first of all, there should be an equality of arms as far as, you know, being able to advocate or campaign for different views in the elections. What we understand is that the regulatory bodies for the media have prevented airtime for those who are calling for a boycott of the election, for example. And we've also seen that, you know, opposition politicians are being arrested. We have seen the suppression of protests that are being carried out against the vote. So we would ask the government to refrain from carrying out these actions, to in fact create the space for people to be able to express diverging opinions on this election. That was Ravina Shamdasani from the UN Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights speaking to UN Radio's Alpha Diallo. Stephen McGowan, a South African who has been held hostage in Mali for almost six years, has been released. He was abducted by the Al-Qaeda-linked terror group in northern Mali in November 2011 alongside Johan Gustafsson from Sweden and Dutchman Sjak Reschke, who was freed in April 2015 by the French Special Forces. Gustafsson was released in June. The South African humanitarian relief organization Gift of the Givers worked tirelessly to negotiate McGowan's release, which finally happened on the 29th of July. To find out about the release, Channel Africa's Pumelele Zondi spoke to Dr. Mtia Suleiman, founder of Gift of the Givers. In 2015, Malcolm McGowan came to us and said, look, he's not making any headway. Well, actually, he came to us before that. He came to us after we released Yolandi Koki in 2014. He said, look, I need help with my son. I'm making no headway. There's no progress. Can you help me? He said also, but I know you're busy trying to release Pierre Koki, so it's only prudent that I wait. I know it's ethical that I wait. I'll wait for you to finish up with Pierre Koki. Then in 2015, after the Koki case, uh, there was a video, a proof of life video showing McGowan. And I told him, I said, Malcolm, the video is telling me they want to talk. We need to do it now. We then put a negotiator on the ground. And to answer your question, we were involved in that process from 23rd June 2015 right to the present time. The government knew we were involved. They asked us to carry on with the process, to brief them. We met them on several occasions, and we kept on giving them feedback as to what we were doing. And they told us to continue. But the last phase, we said, government, we can't do that because it requires government-to-government discussions between the Mali government and the South African government. It requires discussion with the state security of the two countries. It requires the provision of military to fetch the hostage from the dangerous area. It requires helicopters. It requires private planes. It requires passports. All those things the NGOs can't do, and that's where government has to get involved. 
But up to that time, we were fully involved. Actually, we found Al-Qaeda. We found the captors, we found the intermediary, and we started the negotiations, and we got into the process to the present uh, situation. Mm. Um, you're telling us that you had to bring the government in um, because you needed resources. Uh, but can you just tell us um, about what actually goes into this? Because the South African government does say that it doesn't pay ransom for hostages. Yes, it's, most governments don't pay ransom for hostages. I'm sorry. But there are different processes. One is you can get it by ransom. The second one is you can get exchange of prisoners. Sometimes you have to do both. Sometimes you can have an uh, they can be released on, on, on a good, sorry, I'm just on a good word, on compassionate grounds. Sorry, I've been talking so much on the media today. Compassionate uh, grounds. Yes. Uh, no, it's uh, fine. It's fine. We understand. It's been a long day for you. Yeah, the compassionate grounds. And the fourth one is there are some governments that have influence on the captives. And, you know, we mentioned that to our government. Certain captives, certain governments have an influence on the captives. So it could be any of those processes. We pushed for compassionate release. And the guys that can carry a lot of weight are the intermediaries. They can have a lot of, they, not they can, they do have a lot of influence on the captives. And they said, please tell them, the man has lost his mother. He's not going to see his mother. She waited five years and seven months, six months at that time to see him. His mother is gone. He's alone now. The other hostages that were with him are gone. He's going to get ill. South Africa doesn't have money to pay. The family doesn't have money to pay. We, we, we sort of convinced the elders, not the Al-Qaeda people, the elders in the, in the tribal leaders, and said, consider releasing him on compassionate grounds. We're not sure eventually that's what happened, because as I said, we were not involved in the final stage. We stayed out of that. The government talked with other governments, and we, it could be any of these processes. We don't know what it was. Mm. Um, and was the Mali government involved at all, and at, um, at which point did, did the Mali government get involved? You have to start with the Mali government. It's their country. You can't do anything behind the, the back of the Mali government. You have to, we spoke to them from the first day. We got involved. When we got involved, we told them, this is what you're going to do. They can tell us, get out of my country. We don't want you here. They didn't say that. They said, you need to work with us. You need to work with our state security. And because the intermediaries are well-known and respected by the government, and the government respects them, we followed the process. They actually they use the word procedure. We followed the procedure. And because of that, we were allowed in the country. Otherwise, if we had not followed procedure, it would have been discourteous, it would have been insulting, and it would be like going through the back door in somebody else's country. You can't do that. How is Stephen? How is? Well, he's in hospital now. You know, the wife had just told me this morning, nothing major. He's just exhausted. He's got some fever. He's got some headache. But he's probably tired from the journey, coming from the desert in, into, into the capital and coming back home. So he's tired and he's exhausted. And, of course, it's a, just a strange feeling seeing family after five years and eight months. Okay. I haven't met him. And he, but she sent a message this morning to say that he wants to see me. And I said, this is not the right time. He needs to recuperate. He needs to be with his family. And we shall speak a little later. Mm. Um, and do we know what um, these groups are actually looking for? Um, what they actually want when they hold people hostage? Um, is, it, is it only the issues that you mentioned? It's, yes, it's all those issues. It, primarily, it's money. Primarily, it's money or exchange of prisoners. Those are the two things that they normally look for. And would they know where their captors come from, or rather where their, where their prisoners come from? Yeah, they, they put the passports on it. They normally take the passports. It's the passports, it's the passports, they know where they come. And quite often, unfortunately, it's a mistaken identity in the wrong country. You know, when they see white people, they think Western, they think they're all Europeans. 
I mean, in two cases, it was a problem. Pierre Koki and Yohannes Koki, they were South African, but they thought they were from Europe, in, 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 in Yemen. And when they took, took Stephen McGowan, they thought it was also from Europe, but he is actually from South Africa. So unfortunately, and, but once they catch you and see your passport, they don't take you back and say, sorry, we made a big mistake. They take you back where you found, we found you from. It doesn't work that way. That was Dr. Imtiaz Suleiman, founder and director of the South African humanitarian relief organization, Gift of the Givers. We have good news for you. Join us for a new program on Mondays at 9 Central African time. We have Shukumano, the African labor show for you. It takes the place of one-on-one and gives you an African view of the world of labor and unions on our continent. Channel Africa, the African perspective. This is the African labor show. Let's go back in time to today in 1993. The Arusha Accord is signed to end civil war in Rwanda between the Rwandan government and Tutsi Rwandan Patriotic Front, RPF. That was today in history in the year 1993. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa And our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbera Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Rwandan President Paul Kagame, who's been in power since the year 2000, is widely to expected to win another term as the country goes to the polls. Another Zambian opposition leader has been arrested and will be charged with defaming President Edgar Lungu and the head of the United Nations peacekeeping operations confirm that efforts are underway to expedite the full deployment of a regional protection force to South Sudan. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. The iron ore industry has made a comeback in 2016, seeing significant gains in production and exports despite soft Chinese consumption and low prices for most of the year. This is according to the United Nations Iron Ore Market Report released this week. The report shows the key indicators of demand and supply, seaborne trade and price 
all made gains through the year and says the market outlook remains steady. Yang Chun Zhang, chief of the Commodity Policy Implementation and Outreach Section at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, has more on the report and its findings. This report uh, reviews the RO market in 2015-16 and uh, the uh, first part of 2017. So it is a report that includes a lot of information on both the supply and demand side of the market. Then, as you said, the main message of the report is that the RO market, even though experienced a very difficult year of 2015, the 2016 is a better year for the industry. Uh, we know back in the year 2015, the RO price dropped from around $70 uh, per ton in January to uh, below $40 per ton in December. Then in 2016, the first couple of months were still very, very dismal for the industry. The price was hovering around $40 per, per, per ton for a long time until the, the, the third and fourth quarters of the year. But in September, we see the price uh, climb back to uh, close to $60 per ton. Then the year ended at $80 per ton. So it's a quite uh, uh, a substantial increase in the iron ore price uh, during the year of 2016. So that's the main message uh, our report uh, brought out. Uh, what are the major contributing factors uh, to this growth that you have just spoken about? Uh, we have to look at the price movement of the iron ore in a larger context. We know after the 2008-2009 global economic and financial crisis, a lot of commodities experienced a huge uh, uh, price drop. Uh, in terms of iron ore, its historical high was around $193 per ton back in 2011. So the price uh, dropped from that level to uh, below $40 uh, at the end of uh, 2015. is a huge uh, movement. Then it has a lot to do with the global economic uh, slowdown, of course. Uh, it has to do with uh, uh, economic rebalancement, rebalancing in some uh, developing and emerging economies. Then the 2016, the main reason we see the price had uh, climbed back uh, was mainly due to um, during the course of 2016, the demand side, on the demand side, the, um, the, the, the major developing economy, economy uh, emer- emerging and developing economies like China, India, uh, their economic growth had been stabilized and even showed some positive signs. Now, the cost of uh, the iron ore production is usually astronomical, but you are saying in the report here that producers of iron ore have reduced mining costs substantially over the past four years. What is the reason for this, uh, Yanchun? Uh, it is a very, very uh, important question. Then, actually, this is the new chapter a uh, new section we added to the 2017 Uncut Iron Ore Report. We look at the cost, cost curves of, uh, of the industry and the cost curve of each major uh, iron ore producing companies. It's very interesting, as you said, to observe the substantial decrease in the mining cost uh, for the industry, especially in the report we reviewed that from 2013 to 2016, during these uh, four years, the 
on average, the uh, the mining cost of iron ore uh, per dry uh, 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 ton has decreased by twenty two dollars per uh, uh, per ton. So what does it mean? Then why it happened? Uh, again, we have to uh, look at the industry uh, evolving over the past uh, uh, past uh, several years. Uh, after the economic uh, crisis, of course, the, there's a lot of consolidation on the supply side. Then there's a lot of cut down on the supply. Then the companies, uh, 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 the industry in general, has become much, much more efficient than before. And so that the mining cost has dropped substantially. Then according to the estimate uh, 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 done by the report, uh, per dry town, the cost has reduced by $22. Uh, but uh, we have to keep in mind that the mining cost of different countries and different uh, producing mines vary, uh, vary uh, dramatically across uh, these uh, different mines. Now, just give us a global iron ore production picture, Yansun. Where is iron ore mostly produced at the moment, and how is the African continent doing in this regard? Uh, thank you very much for the question. Uh, I think this question will be interesting to your audience. Uh, so the major iron ore producing countries remain the same, uh, Australia, Brazil, Canada, uh, Sweden, U.S. Then in Asia Pacific, China itself is a major iron ore producing country. India, uh, India is incre- increasing its uh, uh, production as well. Uh, so does Malaysia. Then if you look at Africa, African continent itself is a player in the iron ore market, but the supply from Africa remains substantially below other continents. That was Yan Chun Zhang from the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development on the line from Geneva, Switzerland, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbelo Mujerele. Now let's go back in time to today in 1971. Malawian ambassador to South Africa, Joe Kachingwe, becomes the first black African statesman to be formally recognized by the apartheid government in South Africa. That was today in history in the year 1971. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Many people in rural African communities still believe that disability is caused by supernatural forces, curses, and as punishment for wrongdoings. This is a finding of a study by the University of East Anglia in the UK. Lead researcher Dr. Karen Bunning from UEA's School of Health Sciences says information on the medical causes of childhood disability are not widely available across communities in low-income countries and understanding is generally poor. 
just been doing some research in the eastern part of Kenya, on the coast, into the rural area, and we found that local beliefs seem to attribute disability to either to human transgression of social conventions, and then that becomes related to invoking a curse. So, for instance, inappropriate family relations. They also, there were beliefs about supernatural forces affecting the child. The will of God was also very important in explaining disability, but there was also some new knowledge about biomedical factors, so it wasn't solely about the sort of more traditional beliefs. Is Kenya the only country that was involved in the study, or did you also perhaps look at other African countries? We looked at other African countries in terms of the review of the literature, but for the actual primary data collection, we looked at Kalifi County in Kenya. Were you shocked by some of the stories you heard during the research in terms of what people think about disability? Yes, I think some of the stories are really quite shocking. But my colleague um, is a native of the area, and I think he probably expected some of these stories, being very familiar with the culture locally. But they were quite shocking. And of course, when you believe evil in a child who has disability, it can translate into very negative responses by members of the community to the child. Talking about this belief that evil forces are behind um, disability, is this a belief also held by even parents of children themselves? Right. Um, I can't really answer that because the people that were, were involved in our focus group discussions, they were either community health worker groups or women's groups. Now, some of them were, in fact, parents of children with disability, but what they all discussed were the stories that they had come across and the beliefs in terms of their experiences in the community. So that's how uh, our research was conducted. Some of them were parents and they had come across it, but it wasn't clear whether, in fact, they believed these things themselves. Let's talk about the consequences of these various beliefs about disability and how are people with disability in turn affected by what people think. Yes, I think part of the problem is, is if you start to believe very negative things of the person who has a disability and you also understand that evil forces are at work, that can actually inform a very negative way of responding to the individual who has a disability. You know, if you believe it is just to do with the will of God, some of the people who did uh, communicate about believing it to be the will of God seem to have a greater acceptance of the child's disability. However, when the child's disability was associated with some kind of evil spirit, this was quite disturbing for people to understand. And of course, if you have that kind of view of the individual, that they are associated with evil, it can lead to very, very dehumanizing responses by people in the community, almost dehumanizing in terms of the way they treat the individual. I understand that you also looked at medical explanations of disabilities as they begin to emerge, something you touched on earlier on. Yes. Well, really, you know, it wasn't all about sort of traditional beliefs. There was some level of knowledge and understanding of biomedical causes of disability. For example, there was some understanding of prenatal explanations of childhood disability, that some conditions may be inherited. It might be to do with birth complications. 
infections. They also understood about um, postnatal infections and illness that might affect the child, and one outcome might be disability. There was also some understanding of attempted home abortion and how that might um, impair the child, and of course accidents as well. Finally, Dr. Berning, now what's the significance of the findings of this study? Well, the significance of the findings lies in the fact that if we want to actually unroll or introduce any new interventions to improve the lives of children with disabilities and their families, we need to first address the needs of the local community because that's where the majority of the challenges lie. This paper that we have reported is the first paper in two. The second part of the research was doing disability awareness training for the community where we um, invited five people who had lived all their lives with uh, some kind of developmental disability and we asked them to tell their stories to the community group to see if the contact with people who have real experiences of disability in their lives actually helped to change their beliefs and change their attitudes and therefore the behavior and responses towards people with disabilities. That was Dr. Karen Bunning, a researcher from the UK-based University of East Anglia's School of Health Sciences, and she was on the line speaking to Jane Rabutata. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabisa Lohoku. Thanks, Balungile. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa and the Cabin Crew Association have joined forces to fight against the escalating crisis at the South African Airways SAA. Members are embarking on a march to demand an improvement in their wages and working conditions. The union's acting spokesperson, Pagamile Flubi. The purpose of the march is to highlight the deepening crisis at South African Airways. Uh, Many people are aware of the fact that SAA is in crisis, it's in debt, but more importantly, it is steeped in corruption. And it is this corruption that is having a major impact on the day-to-day operations of the airline, to the point where our members are being denied a living wage because of the extent of this financial crisis caused by rampant looting and corruption. Close to 75,000 million U.S. dollars may have been removed from South Africa's fiscus illegally. The former finance minister, Pravin Gordon, says money is still being stolen while no one is being held accountable. Gordon says South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority has been accused of turning a blind eye to serious allegations of state capture and against the Gupta family as contained in a series of emails. There were a couple of things that were surprising. The one is the scale of what was going on. Um, The fact that petty thieving, if you like, uh, might have been happening at one or other level, that some major tenders were going wrong. What number will we attach to the scale at which things are happening? And some are saying that about 100 billion rands might have disappeared. 100 billion rands is approximately 8.5 to 9% of total government expenditure. 
Nigeria and the International Monetary Fund disagree over how much the Nigerian economy will grow this year, with the government saying 2.2% and the funding opting for just 0.8%. Either would be an improvement on last year, when Nigeria suffered its first recession in more than two decades. The Nigerian government's forecasts are contained in a document titled 2018-20 Medium-Term Fiscal Framework and Strategy Paper. Africa's biggest mobile phone operator, MTN, has returned to profit in the first half of the year. The results were bolstered by the absence of charges related to a 1.1 billion US dollar fine imposed by Nigerian authorities last year in a long-running dispute over unregistered SIM cards. MTN's shares are more than 3% lower. U.S. investors have added 1.8 billion U.S. dollars to taxable bond funds during the latest week, marking the fourth straight week of inflows for the funds. According to the country's research service, LIPA, data, it shows that stock funds were posted at $133 million of outflows in America during the week through Wednesday, a third straight week of withdrawals. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.31 in South Africa. It's at 10.11 in Botswana and at 9.02 in Zambia. 0.75 to the British pound, 0.84 to the euro. Gold on thousand two six eight dollars platinum $9.61 an ounce. Brand crude oil, $52.73 a barrel. You're listening to Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.50 Central African time and our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with cricket news, Zimbabwe's national under-19 cricket team will be hosting their Kenyan counterparts in a week-long tour. The two countries are preparing for the upcoming under-19 cricket World Cup set for New Zealand from the 13th of January to the 3rd of February 2018. Zimbabwe Cricket Union Communications Manager Darlington Majonga says they will be playing four one-day international matches during this tour. Majonga sheds more light on this tour. We currently have the Kenyan national team in Zimbabwe uh, for four one-day matches against our under-19 side. This is taking place in Kwekwe. This tour by the Kenyan side comes hard on the heels of the Zimbabwe under-19 side's 
2-1 series loss to the West Indies under-19s in Harare just this past weekend. You know, as Zimbabwe cricket, we are stopping at nothing to ensure that our national under-19 side is well prepared for the 2018 ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup to be held from January to February 2018 in New Zealand. Majonga says although the team to New Zealand is still to be decided upon, there are a few youngsters who have raised their hands for selection. I'm sure the coaches probably have an idea of who is going to to, to, to New Zealand because we have had a couple of tours, they have had trials, we have had tournaments here at home to select players, they have had uh, training camps, so I'm sure they now have an idea. But one person for certain who is, I know is going to New Zealand is the captain Liam Roche, uh, one of our top batsmen who was uh, the outstanding Zimbabwe player during the just-ended series against West Indies. We have Jaden Schadendorf. I think most of you who attended the tri-series between Zimbabwe, South Africa and Sri Lanka there in South Africa uh, saw what he could do. We have the likes of Dion Myers. We have the likes of Tanu Makoni. There are a couple of youngsters who I can safely say will make it to the World Cup. On to local rugby news, South African rugby side Lions head coach Johan Ackerman says his team faces a great challenge when they play the Super Rugby final against the Crusaders at their home ground Emirates Air Park, um, Airline Park in Johannesburg this coming Saturday. The Lions will host their final match after losing last year's final to the Hurricanes in Wellington in New Zealand. Yeah, I trust and believe that you know the guys can look back to last year as individuals and think about the week building up to the match and what the experience was and the disappointment when the final whistle went and you know they know we're only going to get that 80 minutes to to play and do everything you want to do um, you, so that you have got no regrets afterwards but saying that the team has changed a little bit some players is not involved um, that played last year and then again the venue has changed you know so it's great to replay everything but in front of a home crowd and instead of I don't know what the Wellington uh, stadium can take I think 30 or 35 now it's 60 60 plus thousand people so it's it's a it's a nice uh, atmosphere a nice challenge for us and finally, in local netball news, Dr. Alshon Jordan says she has, has always had ambitions of coaching the country's national netball team. Dr. Jordan was earlier this week announced as the new head coach of the Spa Proteas. As a former Spa Protea captain, Jordan has been appointed head coach up until the end of the World Cup in Liverpool, England in 2019. She says it's an honour to lead the national team. It's very, I am very honoured, but in the same, uh, it's, a, it's a big honour, but also a huge responsibility. So I'm very, also very aware of that. I, I love coaching always, and um, I've studied sports science. I, I always had an interest in coaching, and um, I, I, I'm a firm believer that um, I, it's not necessarily true that every good player is a good coach, but somewhere in the mix, uh, you should also be able to, to get a coach out of that. And, and I'm happy that I have the talent talent to do that so I'm really looking forward um got a lot of passion for the green and gold I know how it feels to wear that dress so I'm very excited for Zion Sports News at the South stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective
Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa Rwandans vote today in presidential election. Concern over unrest in Mauritania ahead of referendum and UN envoy meets South Sudan's President Salva Kiir. That wraps up Africa rise and shine for today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsura Magdadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp us at 277-630-03327. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Mishka with the song title Payday. Money, money, money is in my pocket.